Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hey there, so glad you've decided to take a listen to this episode of The Mod Pod. It's officially spring. Time to put those flannel sheets away, get to weeding your gardens, and dust off your patio furniture. All things you can do while listening to this podcast. First up, we have something equally interesting and disturbing for you. Did you know that the optometric profession is subject to legislation that eye care professionals may not approve of or even know about? Sound hard to believe? Let Rasika Whitesell of Lane Optometry and My Eye Doctor, both in Wilmington, North Carolina, explain. Imagine waking up one morning to find that your legal right to prescribe glaucoma eye drops had vanished without your prior knowledge or input. Sounds absurd, right? Well, this scenario can absolutely occur in our profession. Optometry is subject to legislation that we may not approve of or even know about. But that is why the American Optometric Association political action committee, and the state optometric societies fight on our behalf to ensure that we can practice to the greatest extent of the law. Each state has a grassroots committee that enables optometrists to thrive. Optometrists, known as key people, work behind the scenes and are in direct contact with legislators to explain exactly what we do. This is important because these legislators dictate how we can and cannot practice, so it is prudent that they know how important we are to eye care and public health overall. Key people are vital to our profession. The only way to continue to push our scope of practice forward is through the legislature. If a new scope bill pops up, it is best for legislators to call us, the optometrists, when they have questions. This highlights a major reason why key people are so important. Say a new bill that limits the scope of optometry and opticianry is introduced, and the state legislator plans to vote on the bill ASAP. The legislator should know exactly who to call and ask about this new bill, because they've already formed a relationship with their key person. A sudden bill wouldn't happen, though, right? Actually... It can. Recently, the National Association of Optometrists and Opticians attempted to insert language regarding opticians into an existing bill, HB 911, that addressed unrelated regulatory issues such as a clarification on leases and permits for rentals and the use of automatic sprinklers in family dwellings in North Carolina. The addition from the NAOO sought to change the optician license requirements and reduce patient protections for residents of the state. The NAOO is not associated with the AOA, and the AOA has requested a federal inquiry into the NAOO's deceptive representation. 
The NAOO's website shows that it is comprised of various corporations as investors. Fortunately, the North Carolina Optometry Society was alerted almost immediately by one of the legislators that a bill was introduced involving the optical profession. The NCOS Legislative Committee worked with local opticians to determine the effect this legislation would have on eye care professionals. Optometry key people contacted their legislators via email, phone, or text within one day to make sure the legislators knew that the language introduced by the NAOO was not supported by individuals in our profession, which ultimately led to its removal from the original bill. The NCOS, working alongside professionals in ophthalmology and opticianry, was able to help stop this bill before it went up for vote. Lobbying groups such as the NAOO sometimes try to sneak small additions into an otherwise mundane bill hoping legislators won't read the full details before they sign it into action. This is why optometrists must be proactive in their contact with legislators. Optometrists in every state have the opportunity to get involved, at least in some small way, to help continue to push our scope forward. Eight states currently allow licensed laser use for optometrists. Do you know how they did it? Their state optometry societies came together and worked hard to ensure every legislator knew exactly what optometrists do and why we are such an enormous asset. The key takeaway here is that every legislator in every state needs an optometrist they can get in touch with within a few minutes for information and guidance. So how can you help? Consider the following options, even if you do not have much time. In 2019, Dr. Glover and I started Pack Match Your Age in North Carolina as part of the North Carolina Leadership Program we completed. Pack Match Your Age is an ask to contribute the dollar amount of your age to your state political action committee. If you are a seasoned doctor practicing for more than 10 years, we ask you to pack match double your age per month. Even once or twice a year is helpful and enables you to get to know the candidates. Then, when they win, they will be grateful for your support and save your number in case any optometry-related questions arise. They may even come see you as a patient so it's also a great practice builder. Ask your state society if you can be placed on a contact list for input and expertise. For example, when the society is trying to oppose a bill, you can serve as a resource by addressing aspects of the bill that do not have your support. Legislative day usually occurs annually, so block one clinic day per year. On these days, you get to meet your colleagues at the Capitol State and speak in person with legislators. 
Optometry needs our help to continue to expand our scope of practice and to fight our, for our current rights. As you read above, outside lobbying groups are actively trying to limit and in some cases take away optometry and opticianry rights. We need everyone to work together at the state level to ensure our profession continues to thrive. Fortunately, there are opportunities for optometrists in every state, regardless of time commitment, to help continue to push the scope forward. For some suggested ways on how you can play a more active role in protecting your rights, check out the online version of this article at modernod.com. Let's change topics, shall we? How about one that we're hearing more and more about lately? Good. Vittorio Mena, Clinical Associate Professor and Chief of Pediatric and Binocular Vision Service and Director of the Myopia Management Clinic at the Indiana University School of Optometry, and Katie Connolly, Sports Vision Director at the Optical Academy in Clifton, New Jersey, have some guidelines to share for managing myopia. Myopia has historically been optometry's bread and butter. Our understanding of myopia, one of the biggest threats to eye health in the 21st century, continues to evolve with more research. Eye care practitioners need to be on the front lines of this progressive disease, and we need to have the knowledge to prescribe the best treatments for our young patients. Clinicians should assess patients for myopia as early as possible, considering that this chronic progressive disease ultimately leads to eye elongation and many associated complications. In 2021, the World Health Organization passed a resolution to encourage eye care practitioners to establish a standard of care for the management of myopia. The approach should include three pillars, mitigation, measurement, and management. Eye care practitioners are now discouraged from simply correcting myopia with traditional glasses, contact lenses, or a combination of both. The evaluation and management of myopia should include public education, early screening, a discussion of individual lifestyle-based risk factors, and initiation of evidence-based treatment for slowing the progression of myopia. Our professional approach needs to start with public awareness. All of our patients and their families will benefit from a structured and strategic effort to increase education on myopia, associated lifestyle factors, and the opportunity to slow progression. We need to change the perception that myopia is simply a condition that requires glasses. It is so much more than that to the health and quality of life of the individual and our society. Without routine eye care, myopia can go undetected for several months to years. Children do not know how to clearly explain to their parent, guardian, or teacher that they do not see well. If a child's vision is mild to moderately impaired, they may think that everyone else experienced that same quality of vision. They often do not complain until they notice that their friends can see something they cannot, such as the smart board at school. Parents, teachers, and school nurses play a critical role in the detection of early sight issues as they have the opportunity to observe the child as they discern small objects at a distance. Uncorrected myopia will hinder a child's performance not only in the classroom, but also during sporting events as it often leads to slower reaction times. Research shows that failure to detect and treat children's vision disorders affects the rates of adult criminality, literacy, and labor productivity. Many patients admit that they believe that glasses will harm their vision by worsening their prescription, 
or that they will become dependent on the glasses. Conversely, data suggests that leaving myopia uncorrected may accelerate eye elongation and therefore myopic progression. It is important to educate the public about myopia and the significant long-term visual implications to the development and progression of the disease. According to the AOA, the American Optometric Association, and clinical optometric consensus, the best time for a child's first eye examination with an optometrist is at six months of age. Children should be examined again at three and five years old and every year after. Those who are at higher risk for myopic progression may need to be evaluated more frequently. This is especially true for young myops because myopia progresses more quickly the younger the child is. So for example, a six-year-old child is likely to progress faster than let's say a teenager. Once a child develops myopia, it almost always increases in severity. Though the definition varies, most clinicians classify low or moderate myopia as minus a half diopter to about a five, and high myopia as five diopters or greater. In addition to dry refraction, cycloplegic refraction for children is a must. Children with lower than expected hypermetropic refraction for a given age have a greater than 80% likelihood of myopia onset by 13 years of age. Risk factors include having myopic parents, younger age onset, minimal time outdoors, so less than about two hours a day, refractive error, and near work for longer duration or shorter working distance. These risk factors should be discussed prior to the child becoming myopic. When it's possible, recommend alterations in the child's lifestyle to delay the onset of myopia. This is a significant shift in our clinical approach. We really now should be thinking about educating about myopia when we see a young myopic adult planning to have a child, a child who's still mildly hyperopic but is on track to becoming myopic, and then especially with a young child who just received a pair of low myopic prescription glasses. The potential health hazards that myopia possesses to a patient later in life include myopic macular degeneration, staphyloma, retinal attachment, primary open angle glaucoma, cataracts, and decreased visual acuity. The threat of disease increases with higher prescriptions. The biggest and most devastating threats are myopic macular degeneration and retinal attachment because these tend to correlate with degree of myopia and longer axial length. The purpose of myopia management is to slow the elongation of the eye, minimize the spectacle prescription, and hopefully reduce the risk of complications later in life. We need to pay particular attention to our youngest patients with myopia because the disease progresses fastest at a younger age. A patient's final prescription and axial length may be substantially lower if myopia onset is delayed, even by just one year. Lowering final myopia by even one diopter can have a clinically meaningful effect on the risk of eye disease. An increase in myopia by one diopter has been associated with a 67% increase in the prevalence of myopic macular degeneration. Additionally, reducing myopia by one diopter reduces the likelihood of a patient developing myopic macular degeneration by approximately 40%, and then open-angle glaucoma by 20%, and visual impairment by 20%. Evidence-based treatment options for myopia include orthokeratology to temporarily reshape the cornea, low-dose atropine drops ranging from 0.025 to 0.05%, and dual-focus or multifocal center distance soft contact lenses. The MySight one-day soft contact lens is the only FDA-approved lens to slow the progression of myopia in children 8 to 12 years of age at initiation of treatment. In several countries, novel spectacle lenses that correct peripheral defocus are also available and have been shown to slow the progression of spherical equivalent refractive error and axial elongation. These will likely become available in the United States in the coming years. Eye care practitioners should schedule patients for a follow-up myopia evaluation after they've had their comprehensive examination. 
This will ensure families and caregivers fully understand the reason for myopia management, the available options, and the implications of starting treatment. This evaluation should include a discussion of lifestyle factors, expected progression, implications for other family members, and a selection of myopia management options. Clinical testing at this evaluation should include dry and cycloplegic refractive error analysis, keratometry, axial length measurement, and binocular performance assessment. And that binocular performance assessment should include an accommodative amplitude, potentially accommodative leg, ocular alignment, and in certain scenarios, vergence amplitudes. The vergence amplitudes are especially helpful in those that have abnormal cover tests to ensure that your treatment options won't negatively affect their binocular status. Each of the available treatments can influence binocular performance. The LAMP and the ADAM trials have shown that low-dose atropine does decrease the accommodative amplitude by an average of 2 to 3 diopters. So a baseline accommodative amplitude test can help clinicians determine whether a patient's a good candidate for atropine treatment or not. Orthokeratology and myopia management soft contact lenses may alter accommodative leg and may alter uh, near fork posture. So the baseline accommodative leg, cover test, and near vergence amplitudes can help the clinician determine which patient will be able to tolerate each treatment option. In addition to refractive error, both keratometry and axial length are useful measures. Sometimes axial length is not available, and although it's extremely valuable, if it's not available, refractive error and keratometry can help you predict what the patient's range of axial length may be. For example, if the cornea is flat, it's likely that the patient's myopia is due to axial elongation, whereas the reverse is true if the cornea is steep. All available myopia management options have a similar effect on the slowing of both spherical equivalent refractive error and axial elongation. Therefore, it's appropriate to choose the best option for the patient based on their lifestyle and the clinical assessment. That philosophy may change in the future, but as of 2022, at this point, we have the ability to choose our treatment options based upon the patient's lifestyle. Myopia is an exciting and involving area of our profession. We have a chance to develop a standard of care that employs evidence-based practices to better the lives of our patients and our citizens worldwide. So let's seize that opportunity. It's no surprise that developing a standard of care will improve the lives of patients. Are you on board? For the final portion of our episode, the topic is myobomian gland disease. Hardeep Kataria, an optometrist in Los Angeles, California, and Mahania Madan, an optometrist at Vancouver Eye Doctor in Vancouver, Canada, asked the question, heat it up or light it up? These two give the lowdown on how intense pulse light and thermal pulsation work, when to use them, and more. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Mybomian gland dysfunction, or MGD, is the most common cause of dry eye disease and is one of the most common disorders encountered at an eye clinic, affecting up to 70% of the general population. Current methods of treating MGD involve heat in the form of warm compresses, self-administered lid massage, and manual expression. However, these conventional treatment methods remain limited in their effectiveness and therefore result in unsatisfactory outcomes. Recently, in-office treatment modalities have emerged that better address this complex disorder and provide our patients with more effective relief. These modalities include intense pulse light and thermal pulsation. The current body of evidence suggests that IPL and thermal pulsation separately can each result in decreased dry eye symptoms, improved meibomian gland function, reduced inflammation and increased tear breakup time. 
Both treatments are also included in the TFOS-DUS2 report as viable treatment options for MGD. However, there is increasing evidence in the literature and in clinical settings that IPL and thermal pulsation can more effectively improve MGD when combined as compared with either treatment alone. This article will examine how these two treatment modalities fit into our current treatment algorithm and when to use one or both. IPL delivers non-laser light therapy that increases the temperature of the eyelid, promotes secretion of mybum from the bibomian glands, ablates demodex, and interrupts the inflammatory cascade that contributes to MGD. When the root cause of MGD is identified as inflammation, IPL can be especially powerful in helping treat this condition. IPL closes off abnormal telangiectatic vessels along the eyelid margin, which leak pro-inflammatory mediators and potentiate inflammation. Studies have also confirmed that IPL treatments can improve meibomian gland macrostructure and microstructure observed on confocal microscopy, which leads to overall improvement in gland function. Furthermore, various studies have shown that IPL can improve the composition of tear proteins and lipids by decreasing inflammatory interleukins, as well as MMP9. It also improves the osmolarity of tears. Compared with routine eyelid hygiene for MGD, IPL is more time efficient and has better efficacy, lasting more than six months. Although treating ocular surface inflammation is important, clearing the obstructed mybum in the mybomian glands is also crucial to the success of dry eye treatment. This is where thermal pulsation comes in. Thermal pulsation combines sustained heat and pressure to physically melt and evacuate mybum from the mybomian glands. Interestingly, Caroline Blackie and group found that one treatment with the Tear Science Lipoflow Thermal Pulsation System is just as efficacious as applying warm compressors twice per day for three months. Moreover, the results from using the Lipoflow system have been found to be sustained for up to one year. The Tear Care System and the sustained Ilux MGD Thermal Pulsation System are two non-inferior alternatives to Lipoflow. Evacuating the meibomian glands decreases a patient's risk for atrophy and dropout, and studies support that thermal pulsation is gentle and more effective than manual meibomian gland expression. It carries no risk for scarring the meibomian glands and is more comfortable for the patients. The treatment is generally well tolerated, and unlike IPL, thermal pulsation does not need to be repeated several times before the results are evident. We find that patients who exhibit signs of facial or ocular rosacea benefit more from IPL than thermal pulsation because IPL's multiple mechanisms of action interrupt the vicious inflammatory cycle by coagulating the abnormal vasculature and reducing the overall inflammatory load. Patients who have significant eyelid telangiectasias or demodex infestation in the absence of rosacea also benefit more from IPL treatments. In recent years, IPL has also been used to treat Schlesia. Still, IPL is not for everyone. It's important to note that IPL can only be performed on individuals with Fitzpatrick skin types 1 to 4, therefore it's not suitable for those with darker skin tones. Furthermore, IPL cannot be prescribed to patients who are taking photosensitive medications and or those with certain skin or autoimmune conditions. Thermal pulsation, on the other hand, is indicated when there is mybum stasis or risk of meibomian gland atrophy. Thermal pulsation can be performed on a wide variety of patients depending on the device used. For example, although IPL is not indicated in darker skin tones, 
Thermal pulsation can be a very effective alternative for treating MGD in this case. IPL or thermal pulsation can also be good options for patients who are looking for natural, non-pharmacotherapy treatments or for those who have compliance and dexterity issues that can limit the use of eye drops or at-home care. When needed, both treatment modalities can easily be combined with pharmacology and home-based treatments in a multifactorial approach to treating dry eye disease. Each treatment provides unique advantages and different approaches can be used synergistically to address multiple components of a patient's disease state. For example, thermal pulsation does not address telangiectasias, which contribute to inflammation, but IPL does. Conversely, IPL does not directly address meibomine gland evacuation, whereas thermal pulsation does. The current literature also supports the synergistic effects of IPL and manual meibomine gland expression in combination. Studies that combine manual gland expression with IPL report improvement in MGD, dry eye disease symptoms, corneal staining, tear osmolarity, and TBA. These results can be maintained up to six months. We can conclude that because thermal pulsation is superior to manual gland expression, combining IPL and thermal pulsation will produce even better therapeutic results. In fact, in our own clinical experience, Combining IPL with thermal pulsation yields greater patient symptom relief for a longer period of time. There is no cookie-cutter approach for treating a disease as complex as MGD. If a patient is a candidate for both IPL and thermal pulsation, we will usually start with a series of four IPL treatments spaced two to four weeks apart and then perform thermal pulsation after the last IPL. Following this typical course of treatment, some advanced cases may require further treatments, such as additional IPL sessions in patients with severe eyelid inflammation. Follow-up is required to monitor for repeat treatments, and these schedules will vary based on disease severity. In general, however, follow-up schedules for these treatments do not differ between combined therapies and monotherapy. Ideally, we perform thermal pulsation every 12 months and maintenance IPL every 6 to 12 months. In-office treatments are expensive and often not covered by insurance, making them financially inaccessible to many patients. Offering multiple in-office treatment options increases the cost to the practitioner due to the initial investment and staff training required. However, with evidence supporting the effectiveness of combining treatments, we can elevate our dry eye practices to best help our patients and improve their quality of life. With a customized treatment plan in place and transparent education of patients on the need for ongoing maintenance of care, we can effectively improve tear film quality and slow the worsening of MGD over time. We look forward to future studies on the long-term effects of combining in-office heat and light treatments. As you just heard, Current at-home methods of treating MGD are limited in their effectiveness and lead to unsatisfactory outcomes, but new in-office treatment approaches offer advantages over existing methods. So there you have it. That's our episode. But before we wrap things up, there's something else we want to tell you about. There's a new meeting geared toward medically-minded optometrists, like you, coming up May 5th through the 7th in Nashville called ModLive. The focus of ModLive is to provide optometrists the tools to excel in the ever-changing eye care landscape 
from embracing the opportunity to play more of a medically oriented role, to mastering the diagnosis and treatment of various ocular diseases and conditions, to gaining a strong understanding of the latest innovations in surgery, to finding a way to stand apart from other practices. There will also be ample opportunities for networking, comprehensive participatory experiences, and more. For additional information and to register, go to modlivemeeting.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well.